right, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? So good to have you here at New Life this weekend. Thanks for being here. A couple things before I hop into the message this morning. Um, we have just a, a couple of announcements. The first one is our offering. We are, we've been doing kind of an informal kind of offering all summer long, and uh, we loved it so much we're just going to kind of stay with it. And so um, the way that we've kind of been pushing things the past six months especially is to uh, try and take our church to about the 90% mark when it comes to online giving. And we're doing that for a, a, a reason. We're not trying to, to make it where it's not worshipful or doesn't feel traditional or those types of things. And we're doing it because it's easy and it's uh, secure. And so it's just, it just feels really good. We, we eliminate a, a middle person by doing that. And so on the slide that you're looking at on screen this morning, uh, you'll see different ways to give. And people ask me a lot, you know, how, how are we doing financially? Because um, we just put out one big statement at the end of the year online for people to peruse through to see our, our health. And typically, we're doing great when everybody else is doing great. And um, so we just simply ask people, you know, hey, pray about giving here and listen to what God says. Um, we do not like there being a, a high pressure. I don't like you giving from any kind of guilt. Um, I don't even necessarily like you giving from a point of inspiration. Um, I like you to give through your relationship with Jesus Christ. And, um, and you just honor his kingdom and you see value in it. And I think when you're given from that position, you win. And uh, we don't want it to be any other way. Okay, So if you um, like giving a, something physical like a check or cash, when you leave today, there's these little corridors on the way out. And between those two doors is a giving station on each wall. And um, you can just drop um, your gift in there, and we'll make sure that it goes to the right spot. Okay, I can assure you this. There's a lot of accountability here. There's a lot of good soil here. And so um, just consider that when you're giving. And um, we, we want to thank you uh, so much for how you just keep all the wills uh, going at, at this place, and we're thankful for it. Second big thing is this week starts our week of prayer. We do a big week of prayer in January. We'll do it again uh, this coming week. So we start tonight with a night of worship. And, um, and then we're going to continue uh, through uh, Thursday of this week. And so on the screen, if, if you'll see that, uh, tonight kicks off at 6 o'clock. And then on Monday, Wednesday, we're going to do an online Facebook de de Devo. You guys have loved these and you've participated really well Thank you for just logging in and letting us pray and communicate some thought with you. Um, the, the, both of those nights is going to be David Bunting and myself. He doesn't even know it, so that's going to tell you how deep it's going to be. And then uh, Tuesday, Thursday mornings, we'll have live worship here and prayer and breakfast, breakfast from Chick-fil-A, um, God's Restaurant. And so um, we're going to have it from 7 to 7.45 because we know you got to get your kids to school or get to school yourself. And so come by, worship with us just a little bit, pray some, and grab some uh, chicken minis to go on your way out the door, and we can just spend some informal time together starting our days off this Tuesday, Thursday with prayer, okay? Um, we are starting a new series today, and it's called Old School, and uh, you may remember what this is on, on the screen. Um, those of you under 20, this is called a cassette tape. And uh, my generation rewound them with a pencil. 
And so anybody rewind a cassette with a pencil, just raise your hand high. Don't be ashamed of it, okay? It's part of your story, okay? So yeah, so we, we, we would do that. And then sometimes the tape would break and you would fix it with scotch tape, okay? And so, uh, you know, you'd pull it out and kind of do a surgery on it and you'd put some, some and it, it skipped a little bit, but if you were listening to MC Hammer or something, it just kind of added a little whip to it and it was kind of a great little effect. Um, but we are basically going to be talking about really old stories and relating them to where you and I are today. And so I'm going to start with one of those uh, this morning. I'm going to read or talk about 1 Samuel 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. No matter what I talk about today, you are going to have already read this really well. You have really thought about a lot of different angles. You've had this story in your pocket for a long, long time, and you've drawn a lot of truth from it, okay? So today we're going to revisit it. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I still believe it's true, but we're very lucky and blessed to even have stories that are this old. You know, sometimes we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we go, man, that's 2,000 years old. We're pretty blessed to still have this context. But then when you start getting into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the Old Testament prophets, um, you're going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And even though what we have in our hand is a translation, it's still exciting to know that we don't just have bits and little pieces, but we have these things in totality. And we can look at them and we can kind of gather the, the nature of the story and what was going on. And we're able to surround it with other historical writings and really kind of answer some of our own mysteries to it. And, and so today I want to talk about this story. And in 1 Samuel 17, this whole chapter is 58 verses long. And so Rather than, than take the time to read all of that to you, my challenge to you today is going to be that at some point today, you just kind of read through this again real slow. Just take, take your time and soak on it and go through all 58 verses. The reason I'm doing that is because it was very hard for me this week as I looked this over to go from verse 1 and then 12 and then 20 and then 30-something and 40-something and 51 and 54 and, and try to piece all that together to make sense. Because the story is so beautiful and so well done and so conclusive um, that it's hard to really take little bits and pieces and communicate the whole story in one setting. Um, but today I want to do my best to take us on a journey through this story, and I think we have to start by just looking at it again, by what you and I know about it. Um, again, we've, we've read this, we've had it read to us, we've seen it on flannel graph, we've sung songs about it. We have really got our hands wrapped around the gist of this, of, of this story. And so what I want to do is kind of take just a few minutes to retell it, and then we're going to move into just a few talking points, and then we'll land it from there, okay? Let's start with a little bit of context. This story and the reign of David took place around 1000 B.C., Okay, now, it was a little bit before that, but just so we can have a good round number to talk about today, we're going to say a 1,000, and when we're right on top of it. So, a 1,000 years before Christ, again, to just give you an idea for those of you who are um, historical uh, or Bible history buffs, is that um, we are approximately uh, 14 generations from Abraham at this point. 
and then there was David's reign, and then from David's reign, there was another 14 generations until the exile at Babylon, which would have been like Daniel and the, the three boys in the fiery furnace and that type of thing. And during that, that period, the people were just in exile. They were, they were um, in terrible shape spiritually. The Bible tells us that they even took their instruments and hung them in the trees because they'd just given up. They were just fed up and, and, and given up. And so then 14 generations from exile to when Christ was born, all right? So we're at this particular point in this story, we're 14 generations removed from Abraham. And if you want something a little bit closer than that, historically, um, let me put it this way. David's father is a guy named Jesse. His father is a guy named Obed. And his father was a guy named Boaz, and so we all know who Boaz was, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi and, and how they fell in love. And, and a lot of people mistake Boaz for being royalty. He was not royalty, but he was wealthy. And so he was a landowner, he was a farmer, and he had everything that came with land and, 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 and wealth. So he had clout and connections and pull and net, networks and all of those types of things. And if you read about Boaz, you'll see some of that begin to unfold too. But in this story, we find that there's kind of a hierarchical issue going on between David and his brothers. Um, we find that the brothers are often very rigid toward him. But David's great-grandfather being Boaz, there had been some wealth in their family. And now we find, you know, Jesse has continued a farming, uh, a farming occupation. David is a key player in that as he is a shepherd. Okay? And so... When we look at this story in 1 Samuel 17, this is kind of where uh, we pick up. The Philistines were the greatest enemy of Israel at this particular time in 1000 B.C. We, we know later on, some 30 generations later, it's the Roman Empire, but at this point, it's the Philistines. They are a mean people, they are a crude people, and they are a displaced people. And the reason they are at war with Israel and the reason why they're so upset is because when Joshua and his men begin to move in and overtake Canaan, the promised land, they begin to displace nations that had been supplanted for centuries. And as they overtook them, these people had to, had to just move on, the ones who survived war. So a lot of times they would go and find a whole new place outside of, of Israel's way and sometimes they would join themselves to other communities, and they would just kind of pick up the gods that they were serving and their traditions and, and marry into this already existing civilization. So the Philistines were a very distinct group, but it also means a displaced group. And so sometimes when you have people who are displaced, you have a lot of desperation, you have a lot of rage and anger, like, you took something from me. All right? And so they are very much against Israel, against God's people, because they have taken from them. They have possessed something, an incredible land from them, and now they have been nomads in, in a, a lot of di different ways. And so here we have David shepherding, and one day Jesse, his father, comes to him and he says, Hey, um, your brothers are at war at the Valley of Elah. And what I want you to do is go take them some food. Now, the Bible talks about him taking grain and ten different kinds of, cheese, of cheeses. 
And so what I think, I mean, he runs down to the local harps there at Bethlehem, and he goes in, and he gets like the really nice Triscuits, you know, like the cracked pepper and rosemary. And he gets those, and he goes into the deli, and he gets one of those round uh, cheese platters that you put the awkward plastic top on that hardly won't go back. And he's carrying it under his arm with a box of Triscuits, and he's heading out to take care of his brothers at, at this battle. And he shows up in the Valley of Elah, and the Valley of Elah is about 12 miles from Bethlehem. So he has toted this cheese and grains um, 12 miles, and he walks up on this scene at, the, at, at Elah, and it's nothing like war. There's absolutely nothing going on. And to give you a little idea of Elah, Elah is a prized possession of Israel today. It's very protected. It's guarded. And the word Elah translates into oak. And so the translation basically comes out the Valley of Oaks. And what it meant was on each side of this gorgeous valley and protected valley are these two mountainous ranges covered in these enormous oak trees. Today, there is an oak there that's almost 60 feet tall, 17 feet in diameter, and provides 75 feet of shade. And so this valley is full of these trees, or or the mountainous regions beside it. And so if you were to ask people in that area about Elah, it becomes to them a prized possession. They're very very glad that that it's there for them. But for us on this side of the story... A lot of blood has been shed over the centuries in Elah. And what happened on this particular day, the Philistines are hid out on one mountain aside and Israel on on the other, and they're using the canopy of these massive trees for protection and safety and rest. They've made an encampment around it. And what they would do naturally is one or both of them at the same time would progress down into the valley and they would fight all day long or until they were completely exhausted or everyone was dead. And the survivors would back up into their camp deep in these oak trees and they would get a new strategy based upon the numbers of men who were left. But when David shows up, he sees that nothing has happened. And it's very still and all the men are there and Maybe they they look rested, and maybe they look well-fed. And David begins to ask some questions, like, what's going on here? Well, this this is what has transpired. For whatever reason, the Philistines have chosen to do what was very common in that day and time, and they decided to have a single combat unfold. And single combat was this. It was kings taking a major risk on somebody that they had a lot of faith in. And so the kings would say, hey, we have one good guy, you get your good guy, and we'll put them together, and whoever wins gets the entire kingdom. And this saves us a lot of bloodshed, because we don't have the economy to make up for all of these men. If we go down and a thousand men die die today, that weakens our, our kingdom. But if one of them dies and we win, then we get a lot back in, in return off of, that, off of that risk. And that's exactly what was happening. So they've got this Philistine that is a giant, Okay. And we know biblically that giants existed in the land during that that time. Even modern biblical archaeologists have found skeletal systems that far exceed our, our own in terms of height. 
And so we know that giants were in the land during that time, and that's exactly what Goliath is, and his name translates to this word, splendor. He was the splendor of the Philistines. And he comes down, and he stands in this valley, and he's calling out to Israel, and nobody's coming, and he's begging, send me your best guy, and nobody's coming. And then he starts talking about God and their God and making fun of him, and still no, nobody comes. And that here enters David, and he's like, why are we letting this guy get away with it? And he's so moved by this scene that he starts to get the attention of his brothers. And Eliab says this to him. I know your heart, and I know that you're conceited. And then he tries to send him a little, a little zinger. He says, why don't you go back to those sheep that you left and take care of that? You be a shepherd. You let warriors be warriors. You let men be men and boys be boys. Go home and deal with dad's sheep. They're so upset at him. And I can't figure out in my reading... If this, if, if he makes his way to Saul because he has anointed, annoyed so many people, or if he's made his way to Saul because he's inspired so many people. I can't tell. Either way, he finds Saul. So he lands before Saul, and Saul says, this is just a kid. What are we, what are we, what are we supposed to do with you? And he says, I, I can do this. I can take this guy out for you. He's like, you, you came here from the Bethlehem harps to tell me that you're going to take this guy out? They're like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And he said, all right, all right, let's see what happens. But um, you, you have to have some armor. I mean, have you seen this guy? you got to have some armor. So over the course of just a few minutes, David knows immediately, I don't need this armor. I don't want it. And he makes this great statement. And I don't want it to pass us by. He says, because I have not proven it. And I want us to hear that today because I think this is a very mature thing for a boy to say. He may have been a boy, but he had a man's mind when it came to this. And he said, I haven't proven it yet. Meaning, I can't, I can't go to war with, with the things that you've forged from your fires. I've got to go... With, to war with something that I've proven. And we know that in David's life, he had taken this sling before, and he had taken out a bear with it. He had taken out a lion with it. He was very, very good good with it. And he says, King, I just can't do that. Now, there's, there's, there's a sub or, a, or a, a side B to this, and that is that I want you to think about the cultural and social aspects that could have taken place here. Because had David put on the king's armor and walked among the men, he would have already been a, a hero. Because it, the king would have affirmed him by him wearing his stuff. I mean, imagine that. It'd be like, it'd be like going out in the, in the 90s and Jordan having given you his 23 jersey. I mean, you would have been a hero whether you jumped from the free throw line and dunked it or not. It wouldn't have mattered. The man gave you his jersey. Same, same thing. It would have been mind-blowing and very affirming to say the king gave him, what is the story behind this? Something's got to be going on. And he refused it because the fight to him was so much more important than the fame. And so he steps out on the battlefield, and you've got Goliath. And I think you've got to clarify just a few things. There, there, there were three 
main types of warriors in, in, in ancient battles. There was the horseman, who often was specialized in obvious horses, but also chariots, to be able to do some amazing things with that. They would, they would use them like missiles to run through things and, and take care of larger targets. And then there was infantry, which is what Goliath was, a man who had sword and shield, a man who was known for strength or for scare tactics, size, his demeanor, his volume. And then you had people like long range who were archers or slingers like, like David was. David was very good at slinging. Now, when you look at this and you begin to look at it, when I, when I observed it this, this week or read about it, a good slinger, this is not what you go to Silver Dollar City and buy and, you know, you come home and put a rubber band on it, stretch it out and shoot a marble. This was a long leather strap with a pouch and a good, a good person at working a slingshot could, uh, upon release, that projectile could travel at 125 miles an hour. Now, some reports say that they were so accurate that they could hit a bird in flight. And others say that they could kill a small animal at 200 yards away with it. Amazing. David was one of those people. He had proven it. So he goes down, he gets five stones, puts them in his bag. Again, we've talked about this part. But he goes down, he gets these five rocks. We don't know why. Um, it only took one. You know, a lot of people preach that. He had four other brothers, and he was going to go wipe them all out. You know, David may have said, that's a big old guy. What if one doesn't do it? I may have to tag this guy a few times to get him to fall. Um, either way, he got five, five rocks, and he went out and he did his thing. He winds this thing up. He lets it go, and the Bible says that it sinks into his forehead. And this is where the Bible turns PG-13 for a second. He falls to the ground, and David runs up on him, pulls his sword out of the sheath, cuts his head off with his own weapon, and holds it up for the twofold purpose of celebrating with Israel and scaring off the Philistines. And David, in that day, became a household name. Right Now, as incredible of a story as that is, when we look at our lives today, we have adversity. Is it this large, 8-foot, 11-inch entity? No, but it sure feels like it, like one. We look at different ways in our lives where in the, in the valleys of our experiences, there is a voice yelling and calling out and threatening and reminding us of stuff and maybe even defying your spirituality and confusing your faith. And it's this really loud, obnoxious, and something in you has an itch to just take care of it. That's how it applies to us. You may be doing life at 99%. I mean, things are great, but that one thing in your life, it just, man, it gets all over you. Maybe it's one thing that you can't overcome. It's one thing that you struggle with. It's one thing you go back to. It's one memory you can't get rid of. It's one sin you can't forgive yourself of. It's, it's this one thing. It's this giant in your valley yelling and calling and just being obnoxious to who you are as a believer. So having said all of that, I want to just give you just, just a few talking points from 1 Samuel 17 
and then I'm going to pray over you. The first one is this. Don't give me your gift for my Goliath. Okay? Don't give me your gift for my Goliath. Saul was very quick to give counsel. Hey, I got this armor. Hey, this comes from, from great craftsmanship. Hey, this is good stuff. Hey, and, and, he, and he pushes it on him. But David knows that there's a difference between getting good counsel and having courage. And you cannot borrow courage. Now, getting biblical counsel is, is great, and it's encouraged in Scripture for us to get wisdom, for us to talk to people. So I don't want you leaving thinking, Kevin told me to isolate myself. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that, that whatever it is that's in your valley, in your life, calling and yelling and making fun of your current place, you have to get the courage to go and face that giant, the adversity in your life, you cannot borrow the courage from your church or your life group or your best friend or a sibling or a parent. You've got to get the courage to turn around and face it and admit that it's there. And I think maybe that a lot of times, because I know I've been tempted to, to do this, I have my own LL with these big oak trees of protection. And why shouldn't I just stay behind and under the shade of this oak in my life than to go out and answer the thing that is chanting my name? And I believe for us to be have a life that is more abundantly, we have to do some giant killing. So it poses this question. It's a question for you. It's a question for me. It's the same question that David had to get in his mind and that he communicated to Saul was, I have not proven it yet. And it makes this question, what do I have that's proven? What do I have in my life right now that I have proven? Is it the fact that I pray and believe God to answer me? Is it the fact that I've been in a similar circumstance before or another circumstance where there was a lot of pressure and God came through for me? Is it the fact that I have been down and out before and continue to feel the presence of God even when I have been defeated? Whatever it is, these columns in our life where God has proved that we are not alone, that we're not by ourselves, that we're not working under our own power or authority, those are the things that we have proven. And for us, they are no different than David's slingshot having killed a bear or a lion. We've proven in our own faith journey that God is for us. And so I can't come and borrow your story. i got to face this thing for my own. I've, I've got to drop a rock into my own experiences and to the things that God has done in my life and get the courage to come out from behind the oaks of Elah and climb down in the valley with this thing for once and for all. Okay? The second thing, over-prepare. When I was 16 years old, I went on my first date, and I had this car that I'd fixed up for two, two years, and I'd sold every one of my possessions, which was basically a Nintendo 64. And um, no, I'm kidding. I had sold a bunch of dirt bikes to get this car. And my car was 
in such terrible shape when I bought it. It had little bitty tires on the back, and it had big mud tires on the front. And so I drove it home. It was like this, you know, just... And people were staring at me, so I rolled down the window and was, you know, but they were staring at me for a different reason uh, than I thought they were. So for two full years, since I was 14 to 16, I fixed this car up and every penny I had I put into it. Not a bolt on that car I did not touch. And so I get this car in shape and get it going, and I had a crush on our pastor's daughter. And so I asked her out, and she said yes. So I planned to go see a movie at Breckenridge Village which still exists today. And in that day and time, you have to keep in mind, this is 1989. And so I remember my attire very well. And my sister um, was always like a fashionista. She always had just great style and touch. And so I depended on her to help me look good for my first date. So this is what I had on. I had on some Tommy Hilfiger jeans. Really? That's, that's it? I mean... Uh, you don't have to hold it in, okay, because you wore them too. And I had a Tommy Hilfiger T-shirt on and a Tommy Hilfiger denim jacket. So I was Tommy Hilfigured out, you know. And then I had on some, some Tony Lama snakeskin boots. That's right. And then I had like a gold chain with a cross on it because I'm a believer. <laughs> and I needed to prioritize my date, you know, I'm a believer. So that's what I look like. And the cologne of the day was Dracar Noir. That's how I've always said it. So Dracar, my sister got me a, a, a big bottle of it for Christmas. And so she told me, she said, listen, two, two, two squirts, that's it. Okay, two squirts. I was like, all right, well, I put two squirts and I put it in my pocket. And I got in my car and I put a couple squirts under the seats and I put it back in my pocket, and I went to the movie theater, and I went to get concession. I put another couple on. And middle of the movie, I get up, go to the restroom, put a couple of more on. I mean, I'm killing this theater with your car. And I come home, my sister's like, what? <laughs> what are you wearing? And I said, Drakkar, you bought this for me. And she said, how much have you put on? I was like, two, four, six. Eight. She said, I said two squirts. I said, you didn't tell me how often. So I'm like, you know, two, four, six, eight. I got at least ten squirts going on. And she says to me, wow, what, what, what's your plan? I said, I got to be overprepared for what's going on here. You know, I got a hot date. I got to be overprepared for this. And she said, you need to learn the difference between being overprepared and overpowering people because that's exactly what you're doing. You are overpowering folks. And I got to thinking about this and how I was going to apply it this morning because you're really wondering. And so it, the, the truth is that when we face that adversity, you got to have both. You got to be overprepared and willing to overpower and so when we go out and we face these voices in our valley, David grabbed five rocks. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that he had enough to do the job at hand. He didn't want to just bruise this guy. He wanted to take care of it. He had an agenda. And he wanted to overpower him. But there's one thing that we know about giants, and it's this. Giants like to get you alone. They like to get you by yourself, okay? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this giant stood out in the field. He was like, hey, come, come to me. Okay, when you read 1 Samuel and you go through all 58 verses, he's going to say that two to three times. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. He's, 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 he's 
taunting and asking you to come. He wants to isolate you. He wants to get you alone. And, and this is the biggest truth that I can talk about when it comes to isolation. You and I both do really dumb stuff when we are isolated. If you look back over your life, if you let your memory take you back and you think about some of the dumb decisions that you made in your life, you will realize that those are times when you were lonely and isolated, disconnected from people and friends and the church and the body in any form, you were alone and isolated, and the only voice rattling around in your head that made sense was yours. A giant wants to pull you away and isolate you, even if it's with your own thoughts. He wants to pull you away. You and I have to stay connected. We've got to stay in a place to where the body means something to us, where the people in this room mean something to us. And not just at 9 a.m. or not just 11 a.m., but living life with each other, accountability, checking on each other, praying for each other, thinking about each other, shooting each other texts, encouragement, all of those things. Why? Because when you get alone with your giant, the odds are great against you that you won't make good decisions. Okay, but here's another thing we know, and I'm running out of time, so I'm going to hurry. Giants aren't as strong as we believe they are, okay? Now, let me take just, just a moment. If we look at giants and we put modern science to it, okay, we know a few things. The, the tallest man to ever live in our time of history, in our era of time, was a man named Robert Wadlow. And Robert Wadlow was 8 foot 11 inches tall. And I believe he ended up dying of cardiac arrest. But the diagnosis, if you will, behind this is a word called gigantism. And gigantism is related to a tumor that is on the pituitary gland. And because of that tumor and where it's at, it allows for growth hormone to be in excess. So the body is constantly inundated and told to grow and grow and grow and grow, and normalcy does not come to that person. The body doesn't say, hey, that's enough. So it grows and grows and grows and grows. Now, there was another real popular person, and since we're in the South, you may remember this guy, but Andre the Giant, he was a wrestler. <laughs> he had the same thing. He grew and he grew and he grew and he grew. But there's some negative symptoms that come with gigantism. They are fatigue, poor vision, and low bone density. Fatigue, poor vision, and low bone density. Now, what does that mean for us? If I try to tile that into something spiritual and about your own adversity, it would be this. Your giant is not as tough as he plays on to be. He may stand tall, but he's tired. He may cry out. He may have a great set of tonsils, and he may make a lot of noise, but he may never see you coming. And the truth is, when you hit him, with your spiritual authority, when you come at your giant with an agenda, his knees are going to buckle. 
He can't take the impact. He got his fame in your life from being loud, from standing tall, from being different, for casting a shadow. But it shouldn't affect how you and I go about taking care of these things in our lives and realize that we have the advantage. It also creates a big question, was David really the underdog here? Barnum and Bailey, there was a, a story that floated around and during the time when he was really famous. And it was sim- simply this. It said that at night he would take his elephants and he would just simply basically put a handcuff around one of their foot and he would drive a three-foot stake into the ground. And they would stay there. And people began to ask him, how, how are you getting that animal weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. How are you getting that animal to stay put on a three-foot stake in the ground? He said, well, here's why. Because when they're little bitty, I put that same chain around their foot and I put it in the ground and they don't have the strength to pull out a three-foot stake. The older they get, they don't now realize that they have the power to do it because they still believe that it has the strength that it had when they were little. The point here is this. You can get one thought in your head that will keep you tied down to it. One thought dropped into your faith, you may carry it for decades. Because you think that you couldn't face it then and you think you can't do it now. That whatever it was affected you when you were 12 And now that you're 40, you still think that you can't do it. You are tethered to this thought that whatever that is, you don't have the strength over it. And I'm wondering, I really am, is how many of us in this room today have something yelling at us and taunting us and chanting our name that we can go out and with one stone finish it. We're scared. We're on our heels. We're tearful. We're tucked away in the oaks of Elah. And what we need to do is what David did and get the courage to go out and realize who we are and that that giant is not near as scary as we've made him up up to be. But when we heard his voice when we were this high, he rattled us and our knees shook. And now that we're grown men and grown women, he still affects us. The one thought, the one thought that's holding us captive. Let me end, end with this because I'm out of time. David, you guys can come on. When it falls, finish it. One thing I love about David, because script, script, Scripture tells us the rock killed him. And he fell down. But David wanted to behead him as a sign, as a symbol, as a trophy to say, look what God has done. This thing is over. I'm not messing around with this. I just don't want to bruise it. I don't want to just push it off. And I think maybe, just maybe, some of us have done that that approach. We've pushed and we've shoved and we've adapted 
We've done things in our, you know, we've, we've prayed over it. We've been, to, we've been to counselors. We've talked to pastors. We've done all these things to try to adapt to our giant. And the truth of the matter is we need to finish it. Like take that one part of your life that you keep going back to, you know, that one sin, that one thought, that one piece of guilt and shame, and finish it so that you can go on and have life more abundantly. I don't know about you, but I know I don't want to spend my life being taunted in every single valley when I can take what the Lord has proven to me and go out and do it and muster the courage, okay? So I want you to bow your heads with me, and I want you to look at your heart for just a second. And I want you just to be honest with me.